Hello, this is Dr. Benjamin Smith. Welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition. Today I'm joined by Dr. Richard Bozzichelli and Mr. Jason Gale to discuss catechetics in the 20th century. Mr. Gale has an ecclesiastical license in catechetics uh, and has a lot of expertise and experience in this area. Uh, Jason, could you tell us something about your, your background and experience in this area? And I did my undergrad in theology and catechetics. Uh, I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville. I got uh, well-formed in the documents of the church. And subsequently after that, I, I got a job as a DRE and youth minister in the Diocese of Washington, D.C. And uh, shortly after uh, I, I started the job, they had a diocesan event mm -hmm. where they, they brought in a catechetical expert. Um, it was a particular gentleman who had, he had worked in the area of catechesis for over 40 years. Mm. He had um, helped author over 60 catechetical textbooks and teacher manuals. Wow. And uh, uh, he had a book that he was also selling there, which I bought and uh, uh, filled with highlighter and pencil. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, he gave us a, a, a presentation, which he said he was going to be, he was, because he was speaking to DREs, he was going to be very open. And so he gave us a wonderful presentation on, on the havoc that the Catechism of the Catholic Church has placed on catechesis, and that uh, he gave us some solutions, though, to, to, to help us fix this. Jason, can I interrupt you? Do you mean yeah. the havoc that the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, I guess, promulgated, is that the right word, by John Paul II? Is that the right? Yeah. yeah. Right, okay. mm -hmm. So that, that had, had placed ca uh, havoc? On catechesis? Yes. Am I getting that right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And so he said, the first thing we need to do is put it on the shelf where it belongs. Wow. Um, uh, and then he went on to, I mean, you could just, it, it, it doesn't take any great imagination to know where this conversation went. And it quickly devolved into uh, a discussion on the deinstitutionalization of the church, women ordination, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So from, from my perspective of having... Um, uh, received a formation in catechetics, uh, surrounded and uh, built upon the documents of the church. Mm -hmm. I was a bit naive in understanding that that is not how actual Catholics or catechists practiced mm, okay. catechesis. So there was a like a the 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 way you learn uh, catechesis, the way you form in catechetics at uh, Steubenville, right, uh, was different than the actual practice you were encountering. And this guy was an example of this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing was, is uh, you know, I was catechized mostly in the 80s and 90s. And so when I when I was formed in the documents and I got out of school, I had this experience. And the first question I asked, and it's been subsequently asked to me, is what the hell happened? Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and that's usually how people frame it because they're, they're wondering, like, what, what happened to catechesis, you know, and particularly the, the last half of the 20th century? Mm -hmm. so you, didn't, you didn't find that this guy was, like, um, unusual, right? This particular person you're talking about, like, in terms of, like, his attitude towards catechetics, that sort of thing? No, it was actually typical. Okay. You know, <laughs> uh, particularly among those that had been labeled professionals, okay. those that had been okay. practitioners for years and had received awards mm -hmm. from... National Catholic uh, uh, catechetical uh, positions and things, and so I, I I was struck with this. So I, I was wondering, you know, well, what happened? Mm -hmm. I, and so that began uh, really an interest in for me in kind of uh, uh, modern, particularly twentieth century uh, history, not just in or, or what began in like kind of researching a little bit into uh, catechetical theoretical history, but mm -hmm. catechetical history. But it led me to uh, theology and philosophy. Mm -hmm. One thing that I think we can look at is is the, the, the 20th century was filled with several different movements. Mm -hmm. um, one of those being, um, well, I guess, you know, one of the first ones was, you know, the liturgical movement. Sure. Yeah. You know, uh, maybe, yeah. Let me just say, uh, uh, that's going to define a term, right? Because when you're talking about studying the history of 20th century catechetics, and then you said catechetical theory, right? So what you're interested in here is not just what people were doing as catechism, but the reason why they were doing it the way they were doing it. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So when I say catechetics, I'm talking about kind of the science of catechesis. So how how are we doing... See, I don't think to the average Catholic in the pew, they even know there is such a thing as the science of catechesis or theory behind it. Yeah. You know I mean? 
Oh yeah, no, I agree. I didn't even know there was a degree in <laughs> until I got to one. But, uh, yeah, yeah, no, there's a yeah, there's a, a lot of terminology there. So there are like competing theories, competing uh, ideas about how one should go about doing catechetics. I know I had experience, probably uh, Richie did as well, but I had experience on a different one. But I had experience uh, teaching catechetics at a parish, and I used like the Baltimore Catechism, yeah. and I had people memorize uh, questions and answers. I don't know. Is that a good? Is that a? Is, does that fit with contemporary theory about catechetical practice? Or for my theory, yes, because you were doing CCD. Okay. Because yeah, right. we can get a, we can okay. get into that a little bit in a little bit. There, especially during the the seventies and eighties, there was there was many competing kind of catechetical theories. There were some new innovations because that's what happened in the seventies and eighties. Sure. Um, but but a particular uh, thing to understand about like kind of the, the contemporary history of catechetics is that it, it, it's, it wasn't just, it didn't just fall out of thin air. Right, right. That it was also formed by these other movements and it was influenced by these other movements. Sure. And I would even say it, was, it necessarily followed because catechetics is so heavily dependent upon theology, mm-hmm. uh, biblical interpretation, mm-hmm. uh, uh, philosophy, mm-hmm. um, theology. So, I mean, all of these things, because there was new things happening in, in all of these areas, it followed that there would be kind of this, what was called, you know, a catechetical movement mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, um, beginning in like the, you know, early you know, or mid-30s to all the way uh, uh, still continuing today. Yeah. You can kind of see that as an echo of other movements. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, Dr. Bruce Kelly, maybe you could tell us a little bit about maybe the the liturgical movement that was happening in the early 20th century to kind of set us up right. here. So the liturgical movement in the early 20th century was, first of all, um, I would characterize it really as a, a scholarly, uh, a scholarly movement related to, you know, this burgeoning um, sort of ressourcement uh, theology, right? Mm-hmm. So what we want to do is go back to the sources, look at the patristic texts, trace back ancient lectionaries and um, and uh, ordinals and uh, and missals, right, and see how uh, liturgy was done in the past, and um, and look at the wording, right, that we find in the in the prayers of the liturgy and the sacraments to see what they teach us about what people believed about these sacraments, right. But the problem, of course, comes up that whenever you get enough experts in the same room at the same time, right, <laughs> um, you know, people have their pet theories sure. that they want to expound upon. And so one of the things that we found in the liturgical movement was they were having these Eucharistic congresses, right, which in and of themselves I, I wouldn't really have a problem with, um, but they, they involved sort of in some cases, putting into practice, right, experimenting with mm-hmm. the with the liturgy um, to try to tweak it in light of what they thought they were discovering about liturgy in the early church. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, now, granted, this was not for public consumption, right? So it's not it's not as if they're trotting out, uh, you know, an alternative missile. And introducing it to parishes, right? These yeah. are happening at professional conferences, where they're sort of experimenting with how we how we do liturgy. One of the things that came out of that, of course, was the conjecture about various you know postures in the liturgy, mm-hmm. right? And um, and different ministers and this kind of stuff, right? So so you know we know, for example, that in the early church there were these creatures called uh, deaconesses. And uh, we don't really know much about them other than that, right? We don't, we know, I think, if we want to be critical about it, that they weren't deacons. Um, but what they were, for sure, is hard to say, okay? Yeah. But this was one of the things, you know, that people were interested in exploring. What, what was the deaconess, right? Mm-hmm. How would we use one? That kind of thing. But the posture with respect to the celebration of the, uh, of the liturgy itself, right? The pronunciation of the Eucharistic anaphora. Uh, this gave rise, ultimately, to the versus populum posture, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was um, that was on the thesis that the that the Last Supper was a Passover meal held in a household, right? Mm-hmm. Seated at a uh, mm-hmm. at an ordinary mm-hmm. kind of kitchen table, mm-hmm. right? Sure. 
But from this thesis, of course, all kinds of scenarios evolved, mm -hmm. right? Um, celebrating Eucharist in the round, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of uh, everybody facing each other as if at a kitchen table, mm -hmm. which today tend to be round. Mm -hmm. But of course, I mean, we know now that uh, early Eucharistic celebrations were not done that way. And um, yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking as you're talking, I like history a lot and historical scholarship, but particularly say in that's not military history, right? Uh -huh. But when I research, when, when somebody does research in military history, they don't ever propose that we start fighting wars as they did in the fourth century, right? So uh, you see what I'm saying? I mean, let's yeah. reenact, let's reenact the, the catapult the way it worked right. in the 11th century or something like that. Right. Uh, why? I mean, it's kind of interesting to think about these things and maybe to find out about them, but why? It just seems very strange to jump from the, here's a historical finding to let's do this at a Eucharistic Congress. Right. So there are presuppositions. Yeah, right. right? <laughs> like at the root of these things. Yeah. I mean, why, why? I mean, was there a perception that there was something wrong with the liturgy? Yes, yeah, I think ultimately, now, not, you know, I, I don't think we would say that everyone involved in the liturgical movement, by any mm -hmm. stretch of the imagination, was of that camp, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But there were plenty of people who, uh, you know, would hold the view that that the the liturgy as it had been received up to that point was full of accretions, mm -hmm. okay? And that these accretions needed to be purged. But where do we, where do we stop, right? Yeah. Well, we... Basically, we end up purging everything except, except what we imagine uh, we recover from the earliest practice <laughs> and what was happening with the Jesus and the apostles of the last supper. I see. Okay, okay. And, and you see this as sort of connecting to the wider changes, developments in theology, catechetics, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think, and I think it was there was this again. I wasn't alive during that early period of the twentieth century. But it seemed that there was this this kind of attitude of, you know, kind of everything needs to be updated to some sense. Because, you know, during this time, you, you had this liturgical movement. Shortly after that began the catechetical movement in the, the 30s. Well, I, and, I, and I hate to say the 30s because I don't think, you know, a lot of people trace it back to um, um, Youngman, um, mm -hmm. Father Joseph Youngman. And... You know, he was writing during that time, but I don't think he was necessarily trying to start a movement. That wasn't until the the fifties. Um, but but you had the the liturgical movement happening. You had kind of uh, new areas in theology being explored. You had mm -hmm. uh, the 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 rise of the in the you know overemphasis on the historical critical method in interpreting sacred scripture. So I mean, you had a lot of these things kind of kind of brewing and. Mm -hmm. Because catechesis is founded on those things, it kind of followed that that eventually uh, uh, catechesis was was uh, uh, gonna gonna go this way. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that one of the main things that that kind of influenced maybe even I would, and I would say all of these movements was at some point mm -hmm. there was an anthropocentric turn. Okay, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So the, well, the the. Um, when we talk about the Eucharist being celebrated in the round, you begin to see that anthropocentric term. Yeah, sure, right? Um, but I I think before we even address that issue, though, it seems to me that there's a paradox, right? Which is, on the one hand, if we want to strip the liturgy and other things, right, of these accretions, mm -hmm. okay, which we then see as sort of reflect reflections of um, attitudes and expectations, social norms and so forth, right, that we find in various stages of later history that had nothing to do with the gospel preached by Jesus Christ, hypothetically, okay? Um, then you would think that at the end of that, at the end of that process, you would have something rather archaic, right, okay? Which would mean what? Well, actually, right, it would be a rather severe Christianity, right? If you, if you strip, I mean, if you go back to the early church, Christianity is a life or death um, thing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's you, you, you cut yourself off radically from what you were before, and you put your hand to the plow and you don't look back, right? I and mean, that's that's what Christianity was in the early church, and um, and so you right, you would think that that applying this kind of standard to catechesis, mm -hmm. you would end up 
why would we not then turn to the didache as the model, yeah. right? The way of life, the way of pieces. death. Or right, and or or the um, or why would we not then look to origin, right, as the first great catechist, right, of the church? Um, and yet that doesn't seem to happen. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so the but the anthropo you think the the anthropomorphic term right? yeah the anthropocentric term is the is the thing that leads us in this direction yeah because I mean I think that's you know the or at least the, the the conclusions that many came came away from with the like the historical critical method you know we're we're stripped of all you know where we where we strip sacred scripture of any divinity mm-hmm. that the 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 miracles of Christ mm-hmm. multiplying the loaves and fishes was just Christ inspiring them to share what they already had. Mm-hmm. It was a very, you know, just, again, a stripping away of what was divine uh, from its divinity. So you think that, so you think the, that the that part of this problem of stripping accretions away, then, you would argue involved, I don't think this is, a, this would be outlandish to argue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you would argue that this involved in the minds of some people, right? Stripping away even the Gospels themselves, right? As that basically the Gospels themselves are mostly accretions. The modern interpretation, or the the, the well, some the, of the archaic interpretations of them, yeah, they would. Yeah. I think they might say that, or well, they would say something. that most of the things that happen in the Gospels um, don't that they're they're made up after the fact, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're introduced by this sort of believing church. Um, kind of an eisegesis, right? right. To, to to kind of to introduce the Jesus of faith, who's different from the historical Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have you have little things like that coming up uh, or sprouting up all over. You know where we start to to put these kind of divisions uh, uh, in in the historical mm-hmm. sense with, with regards to the Christ of faith and the the, the, the Jesus of history in that way. But I, but I know even Dr. Smith, you probably know more about this, obviously, is, you know, even within philosophy, mm-hmm. there is kind of this anthropocentrism. Maybe not as much of human reason as a sense that one cannot go beyond human experience, mm. right? Uh, and particularly the subjective, the subjective experience of the, of the individual or maybe of groups of people, you know? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of this, uh, um, a lot of late 20th century kind of liberal Protestant theology, um, which certainly wasn't embraced by all Protestants, but by sort of certain, certain kind of German theological movement, um, really took over certain ideas from Kant, Schleiermacher, other sort of um, 19th century German idealists. Mm-hmm. And so there's a kind of a sense of imminence, right, that that really there's a kind of, I mean, maybe it's easiest to put in Schleiermacher's terms, and I kind of hear this occasionally uh, from theologians still, which is there's a kind of original kind of subjective experience of God yeah. uh, that's, that, that sort of then gets codified, right, and communicated within a community through certain dogmatic expressions, certain uh, theological expressions, and writing, that sort of thing. It never really recaptures the real place, right, where the person meets God. Right, which is in their own subjective experience. Right? Yeah. It's kind of an afterthought. Um, and in Schleiermacher's view, um, uh, who inspired some of the, the, these theological movements, at least in the, the Protestant area of the 19th century, um, can never really recapture and sometimes gets in the way of. Yeah. Right. So Schleiermacher kind of thought of the church as the place that contains the furniture where the experience happens. Right. Um, but the experience itself, right, is um, irreducible, unrepeatable. It's not something that is. Um, um, it's not something that is brought about by the church, um, and it's kind of the real thing. You know? Yeah. Um, and so you could say, say, like when you think about scripture, right? So the scripture is a is an important expression of the experience of the first century Christians, you know, but. You know, there's no particular reason to privilege that one over your own. Over your own. Yeah. And, and the way that it worked out in, in catechesis was they eventually they got to the point where they said, we let's let's have sort of similar to like the Eucharistic Congresses. They said we need to have these catechetical study weeks. Mm-hmm. And so um, beginning in uh, 59. Uh, and so within 10 years, they had these six study weeks. Sorry, exactly. uh, 19, yeah, 1959 uh, to 1968. Mm-hmm. They had these uh, six international um, uh, study weeks, 
um, where they, they looked at different aspects of catechesis and kind of where they began was with the uh, what was called the, the charismatic movement, mm -hmm. where um, there, they, there was this kind of understanding of there was a lot of people that knew the things of the faith, um, but they didn't particularly act on it. So they were, they were, they were seeing kind of this, this dualistic life of, you know, my faith life over here and everything mm -hmm. else over here. Mm -hmm. And the, the two never came into contact. And so they began, they said, well, we need a, you know, the, that Christ and that basic message of salvation needs to be the center point of catechesis. Mm -hmm. And they, so that's kind of where it started. Um, throughout the study weeks, though, uh, they, they started focusing on this idea of pre-evangelization, of that we need to, to meet the world, meet the person where they're at, and not focus on the gospel message yet. Mm -hmm. We have to kind of prepare the soil, if you will. And so the, the, the kind of the charismatic movement kind of dwindled a little. Mm -hmm. um, and so this, this idea of pre-evangelization came up. And uh, the way it was characterized uh, by some writing later, uh, particularly Monsignor Michael Wren, uh, he's got a great book called Catechisms and Controversies. It's out of print, but I'm sure you can find one in your church library. <laughs> uh, that's where I found mine. Um, but but he goes he goes through a bit of this history where this focus in catechetics began on began on pre-evangelization, mm -hmm. where it was focused on the person before mm -hmm. uh, uh, before we really preach the gospel, mm -hmm. and in this you know quickly evolved to well. Um, Maybe we shouldn't be doing catechesis. Maybe we should just be doing what's called religious education, just mm -hmm. helping people to be religious. And, and then later we can catechize them. Mm -hmm. um, and there was even some that argued uh, uh, in the 80s and 90s that, that catechesis actually um, violated a person's freedom, mm -hmm. uh, especially children, mm -hmm. that forming them in a particular faith violated their freedom. Right, like feeding so, them does. <laughs> so, Changing their diaper, all of these right. things, it violates right. their, their freedom. The way that Monsignor Michael Wren describes it was this just complete anthropocentric turn in catechesis. Uh, so it, it, becomes, it becomes a process of self-discovery? Right. Yeah, yeah, this I idea. Mean, if, if, catech if catechizing a child violates his freedom, what are we supposed to do, right? We're supposed to self discover himself. No? Yeah, yeah. And well, and, and so that was kind of the conversation they were having. And along this time, you also had, like we had mentioned before, some particular movements in theology. And one of them being uh, what the kind of the uh, catechetical community as a whole kind of picked up on was, was this idea of revelation, that revelation was uh god was was continuing mm -hmm. that revelation um uh, revelation was not the deposit of faith mm -hmm. that catechesis was not necessarily concerned with the deposit of faith but that catechesis was concerned revelation is continuing mm -hmm. and so they picked up on this idea from a um a guy named uh gabriel moran mm -hmm. um and he wrote his doctoral dissertation at catholic u uh about revelation is continuing and so and his, his next book was a catechesis on revela, revelation. And so one of the, one of the things, and, and the thing to remember is he was one of the most kind of uh, uh, influential people during the 60s. And then, mm -hmm. in fact, this is what one person who wrote an entire and edited an entire source book on catechetics said about him. He said, few persons in the United States have made a contribution to the catechetical scene as conflict, as complex and difficult to assess as Gabriel Moran. Yeah, I'm not and surprised. So, yeah. Well, and this is and this is what Gabriel Moran said in 1966 about catechesis. That's good. The best that can be done for the present, so 1966, it would seem, is to suggest general categories in a curriculum within which teachers could work to create an understanding of some aspects of Christian revelation. The fact that some parts of Christianity would be left out or some overlapping would occur is not the crucial point. What is important is to start looking to where revelation happens in the student's experience of the present community yeah. and to start trying to give some help in making some sense out of his life by using his Christian understanding. Essentially, content set aside, mm -hmm. let's catechize. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, where, where does the Christian understanding come from? If, if revelation is an objective thing. 
Well, it would, it would, it would come directly from God. And that was his idea as revelation is continuing, was that... So, but isn't revelation and the Christian understanding then? So, well, like, why, is the, why does the community, why is there any mediation on the part of the community at all? That's the case. Well, it, there wouldn't, there's not, and, and I don't know if he would go so far as to say, but the way this gets played out is is later on you have some, some theorists, uh, particularly one uh, Thomas Groom in the 70s and 80s. And so what he said was, what we need to do then and what, this is how catechesis should play out. It's called shared Christian praxis, is that we take uh, uh, your Christian experience and we put it in conversation with the church's experience. Yeah, so what makes my Christian experience a Christian experience? Like, how do we know it's just not, it's not just my experience and I call it a Christian? Well, yeah, how do we adjudicate this? Is there any method for that? Uh, no, not particularly. Right. And, and, that's, and that's essentially, you know, in... And, you know, during, you know, even in my, my early, my early time as a catechist in the DRE, you know, I heard presentations on, you know, how the catechist is a matchmaker between God and the person. You're there to kind of just facilitate mm -hmm. uh, uh, this relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and, and even today you hear people say, well, you know, I teach Jesus. I don't really teach about Jesus mm -hmm. or, or these kind of. These weird dichotomies that they that they continue yeah, to so, draw. Yeah, I say I would think like if I was if I was going to take this approach. Yeah. The uh, uh, the pushback I would give to to Rich's uh, comments here would be well, Rich. It sounds to me as if you have an atemporal, um, static, essentialist view of Christianity, as if Christianity is a fixed thing that we all have to sort of conform to this kind of abstract universal. Um, Instead, Christianity is not like that. It's a vibrant, dynamic, evolving uh, community of persons. Oh. So, so, <laughs> so I mean, uh, you know, uh, Christianity is just not that. Like, you're, you're sort of thinking of it as a platonic essence. Christianity is not a platonic essence. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think Christianity so, is, right. a, is, a, is a historical dynamic. So I think the, the false dichotomy that's drawn, right, right is that is that if one asserts of Christianity that there is some um, permanent dogmatic core, all right, that that everything else that comes <laughs> along historically it has to be accountable to, that necessarily means that Christianity is merely a fixed formal concept, right, and has no uh, historicity whatsoever, which of course uh, is absurd. I mean that that dichotomy is. There's no basis for drawing that dichotomy, and, mm. and, and everyone knows, right, mm. that theology, um, to be done responsibly, takes account of history, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, that these people would say that that okay, fine. Why privilege one historical period of Christianity over another? The the part like with the apostles in Christ. You know? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, where, you know, that's shared. That you know, so there's an original kerygma there, right? Uh -huh. And then that's shared in the documents. That right. We have but what you ultimately, what you ultimately end up doing, though, is is from that point of view, right? You undermine the whole, the whole basis for of of an objective, um, of an objective event. Okay? Yes. Right. So what happens is. When we talk about this sort of communal experience, blah, 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 right? Mm. And then we even go so far as to say that the, that the portrayal in Scripture, right, mm. in the New Testament, mm -hmm. of this revelation in the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, mm. okay, is itself mm. an imposition and systematization, mm. right? Right. Uh, of this experience, right? Yeah. It's not the experience, okay? Yeah. And I think that once you make that particular move, once yeah. you say that it's only a style of an idea, but yeah. not the actual historical fact that the Holy Spirit descended upon the Apostles mm -hmm. of Pentecost, mm -hmm. then you undermine, it seems to me, mm -hmm. the whole notion of a revelation of a type that binds all people of all places at all times. And it, and I think that's what they're doing, right? Ultimately, it, it seems that the, the the Christ of history sure. did not matter as much in what he said and what he or what he actually said and what he actually did back then 
is not as important as the Christ you experience mm -hmm. um, and and how you experience who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. um, Once again, though, isn't there a false dichotomy, though, right? Because why, why do I have to say that the that my experience is removed somehow from the the Christ of history? Well, you don't talk right? to them. Yeah. It's not like you're walking around and eating you know bread and olives with them. But, and, and again, and again, this goes back to yeah. the this this there was this anthropocentrism to it, this this yeah. self-centeredness uh, to to not just the content of the faith, um, but even but even in in this case, you know how we catechize. Yeah. Isn't the experience of conversion right yeah. where people decide that they're going to change the way they lived in the past and now live a different way? In Christianity, doesn't that event typically precipitate? And I'm just going on my own anecdotal experience, right? Doesn't it typically precipitate from a conviction that the way I've been living is somehow self-destructive and false, and and this this proposal is objectively true? If you want to put it intellectually, yes. Okay, but yeah. but see, but but I don't I don't know if they would say they would say that's great and that's nice that you can put it that way, mm. but that's for you. No, no. But like when one <laughs> observes people converting to Christianity, right? Yeah. Is it or is it not the case? Maybe I, maybe maybe my own anecdotal observations have nothing to do with with what generally happens. But it seems to me, oh yeah, that people yeah. are saying they come to this conviction. I believe this really happened. I yeah. believe this is really true, irrespective of my own personal experiences, right? And that they, they look at their own lives and they see a record of experience that had in fact moved in the opposite direction. Yeah. And now they find themselves convicted by their own failures and this, this alternative view of reality, right? That says it doesn't have to be like that. It can be a different way. Mm -hmm. And this is why Monsignor Wren, in his book, in his kind of, uh, he lived during the time of a lot of this and was witnessing it first firsthand, where, you know, he said when people would be catechized kind of, kind of in this way, there was, God, God ceased to be the center. And that's why he said when it moved, when the movement, the catechetical movement in the 50s and 60s, when it moved from that charismatic movement, which he said was theocentric, uh, because it focused on, you know, God as being Father, Son, Jesus Christ, the remedy for sin, the church, you know, the sacrament of salvation. When it was, when it had this focus, it had these elements that you're, that you're talking about. Um, but he said when, particularly when it moved to this overemphasis on pre-evangelization, that it took this anthropocentric term, God kind of got put in the background, and your experience became kind of the judge. And, and, and then suddenly, the, I think that's the missing middle term here in your in the interaction with Rich is that that uh, my experience is a kind of revelation, yeah, uh, of God. In which case, it might be the case that I have an experience um, that's very different than, say, Saint Peter Damien's experience, right, or the experience of uh, Saint Simon Stylitis, right? I have yeah. no conviction about sitting on top of a pillar. <laughs> starving myself, anything like that, right? Um, and in fact, maybe have even contrary, right, to, you know, uh, experience. So I think there's something in this idea that, uh, while that may be typical of many, right, uh, that there's something about the experience of the person that is itself revelatory. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and, the, and the church says as much. Mm -hmm. the, the, the church doesn't say experience plays no role in catechesis. In fact, in all the church's documents, she has a particular part where she talks about the importance of experience. I guess the but, key is, like, to what degree is it revelation? Right, well, and that's where it kind of went off the tracks. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly when it went off the tracks, but, but this idea that uh, um, in catechesis, we're particularly focused with the deposit of faith, mm -hmm. which is divine revelation. Mm -hmm. Now, when that kind of got substituted as, well, this idea mm -hmm. of, of personal and kind of immediate, intuitive mm -hmm. revelation mm -hmm. for the person to God, yeah, yeah. So that's where, that's, so that's where we, kind of, I think we can make this kind of concrete here. So yeah. let's say that I'm in an RCA class, yeah. right? And I'm uh, living in sin. Mm -hmm. Right, let's say I'm uh, carrying on a 
uh, I'm cohabitating. Sure. Right. Um, and uh, and yet myself and the person I'm cohabitating, we go to church on a regular basis. We sing songs. We're right there, involved with the community. We help with the fundraiser and all that kind of stuff. So we are involved in the Christian community, etc. Right. Um, and uh, go to mass on a regular basis or whatever. And then you come in one day, maybe you're doing a section on moral theology or something like that in the, catech- you know, the catechetical program, and you say, oh, you're not, to, like, fornication is, is not a Christian way of life, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I say, well, <laughs> pardon me, but my experience is that this is fine, right? I mean, that this is, in fact, a loving relationship, etc., right? And so that my conviction is that the Holy Spirit affirms our relationship. Yeah, so if we want to look at that with maybe some of the the older theories in catechetics, um, what they would what one one even says, and um, is 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 well okay. We need to take your experience. Yeah. We need to put it in conversation with the church's experience. Mm-hmm. We need to put those two right. in conversation. So as we're putting those two in conversation, mm-hmm. the part of the discernment process would be. Okay, is this idea of your uh, uh, fornication and cohabitation is it a ne- first? Is it a kind of a necessary part of the the, the message of salvation? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we would discern that together. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, which you would probably say, well, not really. I'm you know, I go to mass, I do all of these great things, blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And so there's so uh, they would say, okay, well, it doesn't really fall within the parameters of you know, kind of the necessary gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, but but we can't simply set it aside yet. So we have to again. And it, one of this this author he gives criteria based okay. on uh, uh, Richard McBride's book Catholicism, okay. um, which uh, uh, he says you're 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 able to uh, dissent from church teaching. And he gives uh, I think four reasons four four conditions on when you can dissent from uh, church teaching. One of them being when you disagree with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so this, so it was, so this, so I've heard you out, right. And you're telling me about it. We've gone through this process. process. I've heard you out. Yes. Uh, and I'm still convicted that there's no, that, uh, it's a, a loving grace filled relationship that I have in this habitual fornication. And that's it. That's it. That's right. Okay. You've you've now been catechized, okay. you know, or, or that the, the process, that that catechetical process that especially was going around at the time. Uh, was well, I think, I think it's imp- the, it's important to see that that's the concrete kind of scenario you're talking. Yeah, about. yeah, exactly. Now, now the one thing I'm not going to throw out the whole. I'm not going to say there's no redeeming quality in a method like that. The, the the one thing that that method did have was that it ended with a resolution. Sure. Was that you know that you 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 come together. You, you bring these things together and you actually come out with a resolution, mm-hmm. which, you know, a lot of times, I think sometimes that's where may, maybe catechesis fails, is the catechist just simply says, boom, you know, here's what Jesus said, taught, you know, uh, uh, submit and obey. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas, you know, I think there, there does need to be this, this idea of concrete resolutions, whether, whether it be kind of uh, intellectual wrestling or... Uh, a spiritual wrestling or some kind of there has to be some sort of kind of not just delivery of the deposit of faith but uh, the, on the part of the catechist they also need to be an advocate on the part of the person mm-hmm. to help them understand and to help them to apply what the church what the deposit of faith what the church teaches what christ has revealed uh, uh to their life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um which so, so i mean like that that is an important part sure yeah, yeah. But the way they come about it and the way they treat the deposit of faith when they subjugate the deposit of faith to the think, Christian experience. Yeah, it seems to me that like just the, the word deposit. Uh, yeah, it sounds static. Is is would be problematic from that point of view. You just sort of say, well, look, there's not a deposit. Maybe there's a trajectory, <laughs> right? Um, an orientation, right? But not like a because with deposit fundamental like, options, yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, a deposit sounds like there's a fixed sum, yeah, and you and you put it there, right? Uh, there, there, there are there are certain claims about reality, mm-hmm. right, that constitute 
the essence of Christianity, right? So if now this is where I would disagree, I simply disagree with that, right? Oh, I, mean, yeah. I think, right? That well, you um, think there is an essence. I do. I think yeah, that if, right. if we if we deny the um, if we deny a certain understanding of what it means to say God, and we deny that Jesus of Nazareth is the incarnation of a person of that God, mm-hmm. right? And you know we deny that that his incarnation through a variety of processes affects salvation for man mm-hmm. and for the universe, right? Then we are not Christian. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. We may be very nice mm-hmm. and we may find Christianity in many ways sort of personally inspiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But we are not Christian. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Who are you to say? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, why why are you the Christian decider? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, because the constant teaching and tradition of the church is on my side on this. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, that either means something to you or it doesn't, I guess, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. To say clearly, it, Vatican II did not cause the crisis in catechesis. That it was, bits of it were there before. Mm-hmm. People used the occasion. Yeah. Uh, um, because Vatican II, for a lot of people, was an occasion for experimentation. Mm. And so, whether that be the liturgy, theology, mm. biblical interpretation, uh, catechetics was, was no different. And so, there was a lot of experimentation when it came to this. Um, so, people were, were trying uh, all sorts of different things. I remember there was a story of one diocese where... They, they had first communion in second grade, um, and then they would have first confessions in seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, um, wait, so they, they had first communion in second grade, mm-hmm. and they would have their first confessions in seventh. You're right, right. right. So, so then that, by the way, it was, was condemned in 1910. Yeah. Right? So that's... Yeah, but, but, but again, we're in, a new, <laughs> we're in a new time. Right? And, and so, I mean, they, you know, so they would just... And, and again, they would they would just completely base things on simplistic terms and invent entire catechetical experiments based mm-hmm. on this. I mean, even, I mean, and the thing is when I was, uh, when I was a DRE, I was, I was at a parent meeting and we were talking about, it was parents for second graders. And so we were talking about first reconciliation and first Holy mm-hmm. communion. And she finally stood up at the end and I could tell she was kind of agitated. And she said, she goes, why are we celebrating first confession now? I didn't do it till I was in seventh grade, and I was like, "Oh, you're one of those ones," you know. So I so I talked to her a bit afterwards, and she was she's like, "I thought that's how they did it everywhere," and I'm like, "No, actually, it's not," you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's condemned, mm-hmm. you know. But but <laughs> you know, but they would uh, but they would they would take this. Um, there there was just kind of this this idea of with, with a lot of things during that time of experimentation, um, but also this kind of anthropocentrism where. It's the 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 place where revelation happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, the and and again, I'm not setting aside all experience, but uh, uh, is is that it's it's primarily yeah, between true. God and the person. that seems to be the, the key premise, right? It, is that yeah. revelation occurs primarily, right, in the subjective experience of the person. Right. Yeah. So, no, but then I get, I get this though, right? But here's, so again, I, for me, the big thing is always false dichotomies, right? It always seems to me that people are choosing yeah. one pole of the paradox and, and getting rid of the other. But the, this, this is, of course, you, I mean, you know, so you know, the, the, with Immanuel Kant, right? This mm-hmm. whole question of the relationship between the movement and the knowledge, <clears throat> sure. right? And and so um, later on, we begin to see this we begin to see this whole uh, movement in philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. Against the idea that the thing in itself can, can ever be, can ever be known. Mm-hmm. And thus that in this Kantian kind of way, that the real act of knowledge is something completely interior to the mind. And it, it doesn't, it doesn't involve us making any statement at all about the engagement with the outside world, mm-hmm. right? With some objective noumenal reality. Mm-hmm. At best, it's a ground for practical reason. Right, right. right. Yeah. So, so, so here's what I would say. Here's what I would say. You know, I'm operating here on a much more scholastic model, right? Sure. Um, would be that, of course, there's a subjective dimension to revelation, right? Because God could reveal all he wants. If he's talking to a brick wall, then nobody hears, right? Yeah. 
So there, there needs to be there needs to be one um, who receives the revelation. Okay, right. but is there or is there not an objective content to that revelation? That's the question. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, they would. They, Can I give an ex- yeah, 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 example? That I think is really interesting. So this is outside of the Catholic setting, right? But so I grew up in a uh, Protestant charismatic church, right, in which there was a strong sense in the continuing revelation of God, right. Um, that was that kind of charismatic it was. I'm not saying all charismatics are this way, but that's the true sure. charismatic that. Now, even still, right? So there were, I mean, there was prophecy. I mean, strong sense prophecy that putatively happened at this church, right? You know, God declares, boom, right? Mm-hmm. Thus saith the Lord, right? <laughs> um, uh, in public, right? And uh, so it was interesting to me. I remember as a kid kind of thinking, wow, whoa, like that's something, you know, like, um, and, but even still, I'll say this for the, the, the church I came from, there was a measure, right? Yeah. And that measure, of course, they didn't have tr- sacred tradition, but that measure was sacred scripture. So that if you had a, a word for the community, right, that was contrary, right, to sacred scripture, there was a sense that, okay, well, that's, that is, a, as a matter of fact, not revelation. Yeah. Now, that's not exactly what we're talking about here, but it seems to be a somewhat similar dynamic, right? If I'm experiencing God affirming me in my habitual fornication or cohabitation, yeah. right, then I think what you would say is, well, I don't know what exactly you want to say um, practically and tactically in that situation, but I think speculatively or, or you know, in principle, like you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. So they would. You're incorrect. I, I think they would. They would. They would either. They would go at it from kind of either two ways, or maybe both. They would say yes, there is an objective thing, and in, in, in a lot of methods, it was simply called the Christian story. So we need to put your story in conversation with what they would call the Christian story. Mm-hmm. Now, the the Christian, but they would reduce the Christian story to kind of just the basic: I have faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, until you can tell me what that means, so I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go out on that limb and try to define it according to them because I don't know if they ever really did. Mm-hmm. You know, they would have some defining elements: belief in his divinity. I mean, kind of just probably what a mainstream Protestant would would believe about Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit in that way. Um, and so, so in that in that in that sense, they would say, well, you know. Let's let's put your story in conversation with the Christian story, you know. Okay, so that element really doesn't fall within the the, the real parameters of what's what's really necessary. And again, they're making dogmatic judgments all throughout this whole thing mm. um, about what is necessary to the Christian story. Mm. So because that thing falls outside of the realm of what is necessary for the Christian story, mm-hmm. that is a conversation between you and God. Yes, sir. And I'm going to leave that to you. And as a good catechist, I'm going to simply what I what I have done as a catechist is I have facilitated the discussion. Mm-hmm. That that is that's the that's the goal of catechesis. Then is to facilitate uh, the discussion. Mm-hmm. So reproving the sinner and correcting the instructing the ignorant, right? As works of mercy. Yeah, those sound like spiritual works of mercy, Rich. Right? Which, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're more focused on the corporal. <laughs> yeah, so that, and that's an interesting thing, right? If that's what we have to admit about what catechism, what, what catechetics has become. Yeah, right. And, and, a, and a good place to find this, you know, to find this kind of thinking in in writing and mm-hmm. like unapologetically in writing is Monsignor Michael Wren covers this, and you can still find books about it. What is uh, particularly the instance of when the Catechism of the Catholic Church was going to be promulgated. Mm-hmm. So this was, we're talking 1992. So it was mm-hmm. not even that long ago. Um, but, but shortly before it was promulgated, there was a, a group of theologians, mostly from like Catholic U, Georgetown, Fordham, Boston College, and they all got together at Woodstock Theological Union um, there in D.C., and they had this big conference. And they were... Every, like all these different authors, they, they presented papers on different aspects of the catechism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they put them together in a book, and I forget the name of the book exactly. It's like the, not the introduction to the catechism of the Catholic Church, but uh, something along those lines. Um, but the, the first lines of that book are, um, and, and some of them are by 
people in the catechetics office at CUA and some other places was that in my humble opinion, the entire thing needs to be rewritten. And the whole book is just simply filled with theologians saying the, the catechism doesn't make use of the historical critical method or any modern methods of biblical interpretation. Mm -hmm. The catechism talks about angels. We don't believe in them anymore. The catechism takes, does this, does that. It doesn't make room for this. And it's just, it's this uh, uh, complete subjugation of those things that they consider to be kind of outside of what they had termed the Christian story. Mm -hmm. That all those they were they were that the church was trying to to force these things into the Christian story. Yeah. So, the, but the church seems to think those things are in the Christian story, right? Yeah. And like, <laughs> and one does find much of that in the Bible, right? So, like angels, for example. Yeah. But again, when you when you when and this is why and this is why you know when you look at something like the 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 problematic history of catechetics you you have to look at it within the problematic history of philosophy of theology of all of these things kind of together mm -hmm. you know you had you know with you know correct me if I'm wrong but I think you know a good a good kind of summary of modernism is just a complete denial of anything divine right mm -hmm. um, uh -huh. so so I mean you 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 take you know modernism you know never died even though it was expressly condemned and its mm -hmm. ideas were condemned never really died. And so it just took on new forms. And so mm -hmm. they, they, they sprang up and you can find, you know, like I said, uh, very expressly and unapologetically from, mm -hmm. you know, theologians uh, having issue with the catechism. And the thing was, is that the catechism was saying, this is a statement of the faith. Mm -hmm. This is the deposit of faith. Uh, so whether they were questioning, and the, the, the interesting thing, I think the, that really hits in the nail on the head was that you could find essays and several articles at the time questioning whether even the idea of a universal catechism is a possibility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To which many of them would say, no, mm -hmm. it okay. can't be. I mean, I think from within the, their own philosophical paradigm, it seems to me uh, correct. I mean, what I see at work here is kind of an arc of ideas from Kant through Sartre, basically, um, that maps out, again, the sort of, Imminence, right, mm -hmm. of human thought that is doesn't. We can never go beyond what we can experience as subjects. Yeah, right? anything that goes beyond that, like if my experiences that my cohabitation is God blessed and grace filled, then that is the data for me. Period, um, and uh, your extrinsic revelation would only introduce heteronomy. Into that situation, right? Um, your claim, you know? yeah. Uh, so I mean, it seems to me that that what you're fundamentally working with is a say is a set of philosophical categories that really moves from Kant in a kind of arc through because they say the modernist, right? Uh, you know, the kind of idealist that may have fit under that that description. They don't have to necessarily deny, right, that God exists, that there mm -hmm. are these supernatural realities. What they deny is that there's any fixed content to the revelation. Right? Yeah. That, 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 that when God reveals himself, it's just, it's, it's like, it's like pushing the sense data through the a priori categories of sense and understanding and intuition, right? You know, maybe, maybe more, more, uh, in more sophisticated sense through the, the categories of Jewish ancient culture. Yeah, Near yeah, yeah. Eastern culture, whatever it may be, right? Yeah. And so God's revealing and it's kind of coming through. And, you know, you've got that revelation. God's always revealing, right? And so it's going to look different in different places and different times. Um, that, and, that seems to me to be the kind of metaphysics almost. Yeah. And Colonel Ratzinger, he wrote an essay, um, I think it was in the, the, the late 80s. Uh, where he, he specifically addresses this and he says, um, he says the pro particular, a particular problem with this is that the, for the catechist, um, is that the catechists, uh, when they're catechizing, they have to stop at whatever is, is, is present to that person's experience. Mm -hmm. They cannot go beyond it because experience is that measure. Mm -hmm. and, and when you think about this in, in spiritual terms, how, how do you, how do you meditate mm -hmm. if, it, it, or, or how do you, how do you, you know, go to the, the, the adoration chapel, you know, yeah. is, is it always your experience that do you, do I, do you always have the consolation 
that that is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus? You know, no, I don't think you always have that emotional response, that consolation in that way. But when I go there, I know that that, that, that is the reality, whether I experience it as such or not. Mm-hmm. And, and what that does for the Christian, I think, is, is it feeds the soul, it feeds the imagination, and it draws the person into mm-hmm. and deeper into the mysteries uh, of God. Sure. As opposed of uh, simply having to stop at, at what is present to my immediate experience. Mm-hmm. It, it really, it, it, it becomes very difficult to move beyond what is immediately present uh, to my experience. Yeah, right, um, right. I can see that. Richard, do you have any thoughts about that? About the, the this infinitism thing? Yeah, right, particularly as it touches on, on catechetics. But well, I mean, I would, yeah, so I would say, it looks to me when I look at those scriptures, right, that what we find in both the Old and the New Testament is a call to people to um, to sort of lift the blinders away, right? Mm-hmm. So, like when we look at the the, the Greek word um, apocalypse, for, mm-hmm. we translate as revelation, it involves the notion of lifting away a veil, right? Yeah. So that this veil uh, it, it is the is the obscuring limitation, right, of our own experience, mm-hmm. and that has to be lifted away, right, so that mm-hmm. we can encounter something that's beyond anything that we're mm-hmm. capable of imagining ourselves, yeah. which requires the extrinsic revelation. It requires God breaking through. Uh, and furthermore, you know, in the Scripture, so I think one does have to make a choice between Scripture and this view, it seems to me, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Because the, it, you could say, well, that was their experience. Yeah, but their experience was that their experience wasn't just their experience, if that's the case. <laughs> so... Right, so we have this idea: you know, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor has it entered into the imagination of man, where mm-hmm. God has promised for those who love Him. So there, there's a clear statement, right, in the Scriptures, yeah. that what you can currently experience doesn't get you close enough, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We have Peter saying there is no private revelation. Mm-hmm. In other words, right, that this that revelation can't exist at the merely subjective level, right? Mm-hmm. That it involve it has to involve, right, mm-hmm. this this common. Uh, extrinsic revelation from God through the community that we know about, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we see also things like in the New Testament, say in the, after the Bread of Life discourse, right? We have Christ, okay? Um, talking about the Bread of Life, talking about how uh, God gives us his flesh to eat, his blood to drink. And of course, this is completely incomprehensible mm-hmm. to them, right? They know what he's saying. That's clear. But they can't imagine how to understand its implications for them, right? They don't. They can't wrap. Like he's actually saying this is actually a conversation. Is he really saying this, right? And then when he doubles down on this assertion, right? He he. uh, They 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 start to grumble, right? Do you remember what they said? They said so that what we we usually translate this as saying um, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? Right? That comes down to the subjective experience part, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the subjective reception of what's being revealed. But in the literal, uh, if we look more literally at the text, right, the, a, a more proper translation of the passage is, this is the unyielding logos, right? This is the unyielding logos. So this idea, right, that, that God's revelation doesn't change. God's word doesn't doesn't give way to what we expect, okay? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's the guy who's living, who's who's uh, habitually fornicating, right? Mm-hmm. He thinks that's okay with God. This is the unyielding logos, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, according to that, uh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, it seems you fundamentally have, uh, uh, Jason, let you have the last word on this, but it, fundamentally it seems like uh, kind of what Rich is suggesting and it seems correct is that uh, you fundamentally have just a denial of the category of revelation, maybe at least as it's been historically understood, yeah, that sort of breaks in and over human human subjectivity in a sort of closed-in sense, or sort of imminent sense. Yeah, they would try to remedy that because I think they would recognize an issue with that. And so some of the solutions they had for that was they would say, well, you know, we look at the, the, the immediate... Christian experience mm-hmm. of the apostles, which is what they called the Christian story. And so they would say, well, maybe, you know, let's not just look at that story, but let's also bring in our community. 
Mm. And so the, all of a sudden, now my parish church had some sort of authority along the same lines as the apostolic church and, mm. you know, what Christ actually said and things like mm -hmm. that. Our interpretation has. And so they would, they would, you know, bring that into the conversation and bring that into this dialogue and, and, and in this way. And, and so, you know, again, the, the ending to this way of catechesis was I form my faith mm -hmm. as opposed to letting the faith form me. Yeah. There's, there's elements mm -hmm. I'm going to take right. and there's elements I'm going to set aside mm -hmm. or as we as a community are going to set aside or, ex or accept and in this way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's so many more elements that, yeah. that we can go into sure, the, sure the, like the abrogation of authority mm -hmm. and uh, um, their role as, as teachers by the bishops. Mm -hmm. They left it to the quote-unquote mm -hmm. professionals. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a whole, a whole host of different reasons. I, I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but, mm -hmm. but to get into it, maybe we'll have to do another one at some point. Um, but there's a whole other host of reasons mm -hmm. that explain, you know, kind of what happened to catechesis during this time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not necessarily a simple understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, it's fairly complex, has a bunch of different uh, actors and scenarios and things like that. But mm -hmm. at least for me, it's interesting. So, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, I found two more people that it's interesting <laughs> too, <laughs> and hopefully a few more. Uh, but uh, All right. yeah. well, thank you so much, Jason. Uh, it was a great conversation. There's plenty to think about, and I'm sure uh, plenty to uh, talk about uh, in the future. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Until next time. <laughs>